0: The American Cinema Foundation movie podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our master series, I am joined by my friend Hannah Long. For a conversation on Frank Capra. This is, in fact, our first Capra podcast at the ACF. In our fifth year, it's taken us, what with one thing and another. And we will start with his most unusual film, Arsenic and Old Lace, a Halloween film, a farce at that, and a rather dark one, at least at times. It's the least known Frank Capra movie, and it is the funniest It's unusual even by Broadway farce standards. It's a look at the past of America. It's the comedy that we feel when we look at things and call them quaint because they are old or obsolete. They don't seem to be vital or in touch with events. And also it has an element of horror because, again, when we look at the past, we see certain things that simply shock us when we no longer have any connection to them by way of habit or experience. You could call Arsenic and Old Lace the fall of the House of Brewster. The Brewsters are a Brooklyn family. They live by a cemetery that goes back to the mid-17th century. They're indeed pre-American. And they're now very respectable, very eccentric, and in a concealed way, crazy. Cary Grant plays Mortimer Brewster, the pride of the family, a very successful columnist, critic, man about town. John Alexander plays his cousin, who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt, the most obviously crazy of the Brewsters. He does a very good imitation and keeps bringing up all sorts of episodes from Roosevelt's life, and so it's hilarious every scene he's in. He also introduces this theme of nostalgia for the great days of the Wasps when they ran America and America became a world power. Then Gina Dare and Josephine Hall, reprising their roles from Broadway, play the aunts Abigail and Martha Brewster, kindly, saintly charitable, and also incredibly childish, as one's grandma now and then is. They hearken back to Victorian times, going back even farther into America's past. Then there's Raymond Massey, who plays Cary Grant's brother. He is Jonathan Brewster, the black sheep of the family, in fact, a mad criminal. He replaced Boris Karloff from the stage version and uh, is made up to look like Boris Karloff, which makes for all sorts of jokes. Karloff was not just a star of the Broadway production, but also a producer. And since the play was a great success, he made a great success of it too. But that fortune was needed to console him for the fact that he could not play the role on the big screen as well, since his producers wouldn't release him, fearful that the movie would simply kill the success of the play if the leading man was in Hollywood. And then there is Peter Lorre as Dr. Einstein, the accomplice and guilty conscience of this Jonathan Brewster. Then there's Grant Mitchell as Reverend Harper, who lives just across the cemetery, And Priscilla Lane is his daughter, whom Cary Grant is sweet on. Then there are the Irishmen, that is, the cops. The retiring sergeant, played by Edward McNamara. The policeman who inherits his beat, played by Jack Carson. And, of course, the grumpy but competent lieutenant, played by James Gleason. On the WASP side, there is Edward Everett Horton, playing in a delightfully self-important role the director of an insane asylum and Vaughn Glaser, who plays a judge who is equally respectable. All of these people are involved in one way or another over the course of an afternoon and an evening in a marriage, a couple of murders, and a couple of shocking revelations that lead to jail and to the insane asylum. This is, I think, all I can say in advance of the plot, just to give you a sense of the worth of the story. It's very funny. When you will watch Arsenic and Dole Lace, you will see Cary Grant at his most scrooby. He had had a decade's training in slapstick comedy in Hollywood, but this is broader comedy than he had ever done. It is incredibly physical. It is full of uh, wide-eyed stares and double takes. You have to be willing to be amused by these things, but if you are, you will find Cary Grant charming in disguise too. And around him, a cast of very quaint and occasionally scary characters round up uh, what was a play, but was adapted and simply filled with Capra's energy, what we used to call zany behavior. Strange movements running around ins and outs through windows and doors and cellars and so forth throughout the movie. And I don't want to lose in all this hilarious goings on. The fact that the story is both intelligent and maybe tasteful is not the way to put the rather dark comedy, but it has a certain restraint the way things are done is as close as possible to good taste or politeness, which was one of the things that connects the America of the 40s to the America of the turn of the century that is depicted. Now, Hannah, please, first of all, introduce yourself to our audience and tell us your thoughts on the movie Capra and uh, what shall be our Halloween podcast.
1: Yeah, so I'm Hannah Long. I'm coming in from Brooklyn right now, but I'm not from Brooklyn. I'm from Southwest Virginia, and that's I always clarify, it's not West Virginia, Southwest Virginia. There's got to be a pithier way of saying that, but I haven't found it yet. Um, as I sort of relax f- further into the podcast, you'll probably hear more of the accent. Um, but anyway, uh, I, for the purposes of this podcast, the, most, the, the, the places that I write about movies and TV, The Dispatch mostly, um, I'm hoping to do some things at other places soon, sort of freelance around places. I'm working on something for Plow, maybe. Uh, a few years ago, I was at the Weekly Standard as a freelancer um, on and off. But uh, now uh, my, my actual real job is an assistant editor at Broadside Books at HarperCollins. So uh, some of the authors that I've worked with and uh, edited over the last few years would be Ion Percy Shannon Bream, Noah Rothman, um, but we also have a, a list of people that I've worked with in other capacities, Douglas Murray, Peter Schweitzer, David Mamet, um, Jesse Waters, Jared Kushner. Anyway, a lot of different different variety there. Um, so it's, it's fun and exciting, uh, get to kind of uh, have a little bit of uh, insight into the, the big ideas that are about to be pushed out on a national scale in conservative books. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Anyway, I've been in this job for two and a half years and really enjoying it. We're just now getting back to the offices after a long absence. So anyway, um, yeah, you had guided me to sort of talk a little bit about Capra, how I encountered him for the first time, which would be as a kid. I think that It's a Wonderful Life is a movie that uh, possibly of, of all of classic Hollywood is the one that has the greatest cultural cachet remaining. Um, it, it's the one that tends. To, if anyone, if a person has seen any any classic Hollywood film, it tends to be that one, and that was true of me. And that you know, it came up every Christmas. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was such an icon, and so we would watch it every year. And uh, I also saw Mr. Smith as a kid. Uh, I I only ever saw it once, oddly enough, but I had a very distinct, visceral memory of the, the the high emotions and the the broad strokes of the plot. It uh, it just really, I think, tapped into something, especially for kids, you know, the, the big, big emotions that Capra uh, evokes really, really resonate with them. And it def- definitely did with me. Um, so in the last few years, as I've gotten into more actually watching older films, I I saw It Happen One Night, I saw Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Meet John Doe, all of these other things, and became more familiar with him, uh, and was really surprised, I think, because I t- bought into the General narratives about Capra being this sort of sentimental and uh, just almost blindly patriotic director, uh, which I, I don't I think is a very limited view of what he's what he's doing. He can be very cynical about authority. He can be very cynical about a lot of things about America, which uh, which sits cheek by jowl with his his true love for the country. That I think makes his story so compelling. Um, and you can definitely see it in the contrast in his filmography, you have something that can be as, as sort of positive and uplifting and happy as Mr. Deeds or uh, something like that. Then you have Arsenic and Old Lace, which is just pitch black and uh, totally different tones. And I mean, even within Arsenic and Old Lace, you have a, a wide variety of tones, which was something that I noticed. You At one point in the play, play it seems like he hands over the keys to uh, F.W. Murnau uh, to, to direct for a second, but um, anyway, Capra ha- has a lot of resonance for me then just because I remember those things from my childhood. Um, and it was it was really great to revisit this one, So, I've, which I've seen once before, but I hadn't seen it in a few years.
0: Well, I'm glad to have spurred you on to see it because it's such a joy to watch. And uh, like you, I saw Capra as a kid, and it was only after growing up that I could uh, appreciate that there is a tension between the passion he has for America. On the other hand, what makes his stories? You, You don't have a story if there aren't events, and the events aren't interesting if there isn't conflict. And Capra never found it difficult to find terrible conflicts in America that are worth dramatizing. All in all, his stories turned to the dire rather than the funny. Arsenic and Old Lace is as close to a pure comedy as he gets, and as you suggested, it has too many dark moments to simply call it a comedy. I think his winning attitude simply hides so much. And his reputation, I suppose, caused a kind of backlash, a criticism. Although his reputation came up again in the 60s and 70s, and I think it's very high again in our generation, it has consistently been attacked, as you suggested, as though he was some simple-minded patriot, almost a propagandist, partly because he did war propaganda in the sense at the time in World War II, the Why We Fight series. Indeed, Arsenio Condolewis was the last thing he directed Hollywood before going off to war. He had already signed up, but had a brief deferral. But nevertheless, he was the one American director whose vision of America comes across in these big stories that put together a great social conflict and one little family's drama, or indeed one lonely guy's uh, drama or comedy as Mr. Smith or Mr. Deeds or John Doe and so on and so forth. He had a remarkable emotional power and the confidence to put together these small things and these great things about society and, of course, about the great audience for whom he was directing all this stuff. But his awareness of this conflict, as you suggest, makes his movies incredibly complex sets of tones. If it were painting, it would be strange, not for nuances, but for juxtapositions, strong contrasts. He is, of course, a patriot, as his reputation has it, but not without a degree of agony and sometimes a degree of skepticism or of sarcasm, if you will. He is not too serious for comedy. He is not too blind for conflict. He understands that America is exactly what you would expect if you think about the depression in the 30s and the political conflicts over the New Deal and, of course, the war. He is aware of what is going on, indeed, much better than the critics who did not experience those things. Capra himself was an immigrant. He talked all his life about the experience of being woken up by his father and brought up on deck of a ship to see the Statue of Liberty, getting into America at Ellis Island. In a certain sense, his American patriotism has those childhood notes that, of course, American children don't have since to them it's not new. And nevertheless, in another sense, children all have, them, which is why visions of America are so inspiring when you're young. Perhaps that experience turned into his art later on. But it's always difficult to put together these two things, the earnestness that is typical of childhood that makes for big emotions, I think you called them. It's a very good phrase. And on the other hand, the complexity of storytelling, which even emotionally requires that the audience be willing to go along with you when some person you admire, a character, a protagonist, a hero, gets in trouble or gets himself in trouble or reveals a dark side that is really hard to bear. To get the audience along with you, you have to appeal to their own experiences of America that include these darker things. You have to persuade them. They have to be willing to be persuaded that this too is real. Of course, people trusted Capra that at the end of the picture, it would all come out right in some sense or another. But they were also willing to join him for the ride. So since he still has a reputation, it's worth going back to the movies themselves and seeing what built that reputation and what he was trying to do. Capra was not just a visionary patriot of America. He had not exactly a teaching, but he had ideas and questions that he wanted the audience to share in. He wanted to articulate a vision of America that he thought could be the American vision, that everybody could look at America in this regular democratic way that also is exalted because look at what America can do and that America can get through its troubles. Especially nowadays when people see that America is again in trouble, but nobody really has hope that these troubles can be dealt with, certainly not publicly or politically. And there are absolutely no artists trying to bring the nation together Capra stands out in his uniqueness, and I think he cuts a much more attractive figure than criticism of him would allow. He was not only not a simpleton, he was a visionary also in the sense of making movies that would be worth watching a generation or two or three or four on. It's strange that we should start a series on Capra with Arsenic and Dole Lace, but I think in a way it's important to start with some of the funny stuff and some of his jokes about America. Some of them are warm-hearted, and some of them are not. Some of the scenes in Arsenic and Old Lace are just darling. And some of them, yeah, as you said, they, they seem to belong to German expressionist horror, like Murnau, not to the apple pie and motherhood stories of Hollywood.
1: Yeah, so I, I was one comment I was going to make is that I think, I think a lot of critics mistake Capra for his most innocent heroes, in that they think that... that we are, uh, is that he is innocent, as innocent as they are, as opposed to the man who's also directing Claude Rains, who's very cynical and very complicated character in Mr. Smith. Uh, and yet, Capra does, he, he's directing these sort of fall of innocence moments for these characters who start off very innocent, very earnest, uh, and who have to meet complexity and bring their vision of what the way the world was supposed to be and try and make even in the imperfect world adhere to that um and interestingly i think that it's not immediately obvious but i think arsenic and old lace is also a fall from innocence uh except it's in a way it's a fall from sophistication uh because sophistication in a way can be its own innocence as we as we'll see so you have mortimer brewster who is a new york drama critic who's every everything sophisticated everything urbane and everything ironic Uh, he's he's well known for his, for his popular books, The Bachelor's Bible. Uh, and he's working on the next one, Mind Over Matrimony, um, <laughs> which, which are perfect. And uh, so he's, this is clearly uh, not something that we're supposed to sympathize with. We're, we're supposed to laugh a, a, along with the the rest of the, the characters around him as he's uh, humiliated and learning that that he has been putting off adulthood and doing so by writing books about how uh, this this institution is silly and ridiculous and uh, beneath him, um, and so he's on the verge of this realization at the beginning of the story. And as so often happens when other other events in li- life force one out into the into the world, you start to recognize the the odd things about your childhood that you hadn't seen before. Um, you start to realize, wow. That was insane. Uh, but it's, it's, it's much more literal for Mortimer. <laughs> and so as he and his new wife make their way back over to Brooklyn from the relative uh, calmness and uh, stability and sanity of Manhattan, uh, they, they recognize that something, something is up here. So he, he goes to see his two maiden aunts, Abby and Martha, who live in this old pile uh, in, uh, sitting right next to a cemetery Uh, with lots of lots of atmosphere and a view of Brooklyn Bridge in the background a really fantastic uh, interior set and you could see that he has this very close relationship with them very trusting Uh, but then in the middle of a conversation in the middle as as he's looking for the uh, the manuscript of mind over matrimony in order to destroy it so that his wife won't know that he was working on that he discovers a body in the window seat and it's this wonderful moment as he as he reacts to this and realizes that everything that he thinks that he knew about his family and about his aunts, and well, he doesn't even realize it's about his aunts yet. Everything is, is not what he thought it was. Um, and so over the next you know 20 minutes of, of story, he starts to realize that his aunts have been murdering old men uh, that have been applying to rent at their old Victorian pile. Um, that it, at first he thinks that it's his cousin who's the obvious choice the obviously insane one uh as opposed to the non-obviously insane ones and he is convinced that he's teddy roosevelt so you would think oh this is the murderer but in fact he is he is uh genuinely innocent of things and it's the aunts who in a corruption of their charitable endeavors which all the other characters have been remarking on and establishing the, there's a a priest who's commenting on this or uh and then a uh, a pair of policemen, who the older of which was admonishing the younger for for speaking slightingly of these saintly old ladies uh, with their their well known charitable uh, charitable work. But of course, there's a dark side to this charity because they think that they know well enough up to basically kill uh, people that they assume are uh, unfortunate and have no family, and it would be better for them. So there's there's a real, uh, well, I was going to say paternalism. I suppose maternalism is the is the, the word here um, as to to their their scheme. But it's also wrapped up in the fact that they are terribly innocent and twee old ladies who have little quirky theme songs that come on when they play it come in. And it, it's never like, oh my gosh, these are this is nurse nurse ratchet. Uh, they are calm and fuzzy and, and adorable, uh, which of course is hilarious. And so uh, you, you get all sorts of ironic satire that you can, you can do with that as poor Cary Grant discovers as he's starting to lose all of his sophistication and all of his distance uh, over the course of the play to the point that he even starts to, people are beginning to think he is insane. Uh, so anyway, there's a lot going on there and uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. And it, Oh, and I haven't even mentioned that halfway through the story, uh Cary Grant's older brother Jonathan Brewster walks in again apparently right out of a German expressionist film with Peter Lorre in tow uh which is I would imagine for people who haven't seen this before a bit of a plot twist uh because it's such a tonal tonal difference when he arrives and he's this much more obvious psychopath uh who bites worms in two with his teeth the the mother's the <laughs> the aunt says, um, and uh, who has apparently been spending a, a long time in a uh, sanitarium for uh, crimes vaguely hinted at, but uh, we later find out he has killed 12 men, um, which brings him to right to the level with his aunts uh, as, they, as they go back and forth in this this contest between them, uh, much to Peter Lori's amusement. So anyway, you have all of these characters. Mortimer is trying to figure out desperately how to cover up these crimes. Uh, he's trying to call up all of his uh, network to figure out how, how does one cover up this family history? Um, and that's, that's the spur of the plot and all of the various characters that, that enter therein. I don't think that was very brief, but there's a lot going on here. <laughs>
0: Yes, you're right. Uh, it's as uh, strange as uh, we have suggested that there's so much stuff happening so fast and some of the shifts in the plot are so sudden that uh, it, it takes a second or a third viewing to begin to see why it's moving in the direction it's moving and to be comfortable with what's coming next. On, uh, It's the kind of movie, the first time you see it around, your jaw drops every 20 minutes or something like that. And... Uh, um, You're right, to begin with, it seems like the story will be about this incredibly charming Cary Grant, the most beautiful man in Hollywood, the star, and uh, he's going to marry this all-American girl, What is more patriotic and uh, heartwarming than that, and very conventional. Millions of uh, women in the audience can uh, fulfill a fantasy by seeing this ordinary girl played so well by Priscilla Lane. Uh, She has snagged him. For all his sophistication and his contempt of institutions, conventions, and all that, uh, he he, he fell for the girl next door. He is much less sophisticated than he thinks he is. As you suggested, uh, this is a a problem, of course, with most people who criticize these kinds of sentiments. They, like uh, the Cary Grant character, are nowhere near as sophisticated as they think they are. And uh, their sophistication is based on believing other people naïve. Indeed, Cary Grant thinks his uh, bride-to-be is a very naïve girl, and she just makes doe eyes at him when he tries to wriggle out of the marriage to save his reputation. And he falls for her all over again, and yeah, they just get married. Uh, He he knows he's ruining his career. He hasn't fully accepted it, but, uh, you know, he does bite the bullet. Why? Because she plays much more innocent than she really is. Uh, The comedy allows us to see that uh, there's a kind of woman's wisdom in her that is silent often enough. She's not a a loud woman in order to be a strong woman because she wants to get what she wants, which is this man. And uh, so she somehow manages to have him step on his pride and marry and at the same time keep his pride because his wife isn't badgering him about anything. It's... uh, uh, Capra has exactly the same attitude. He wants uh, to win the audience over, but he does not want to shock the audience in the process or force them against their will. He wants to persuade them or let them persuade themselves with a vision of America that they would love most and that indeed audiences did fall in love with again and again for more than a dozen years. So... uh, that, I believe, is a, a kind of wisdom that people do not often seek, but should seek in directors, what it means to be indirect, to be discreet, to encourage events, to follow a certain path, and, uh, and then get out of the way or wait for success rather than uh, be loud or brash or think oneself clever. And, uh, and, and so it seems like the movie will be about how this guy can reconcile himself to having been caught this way. How can he step on his pride and settle into matrimony? But then things uh, turn into this shocking other story where it's not the case that he should look down on this Brooklyn girl, he who is a drama critic from a family which is, if not distinguished, then certainly has an ancient past in America, uh, because his past is incredibly checkered. He. He, as you say, learns to look on his childhood and on his family with very strange eyes, because there are so many strange people there. And so the story turns around to be a, a different examination of what it means to grow up or to uh, become an adult when you set about marriage and uh, a new way of life. It's uh, how to live down your past, so to speak. His sophistication had been built up on an assurance that turns out to be arrogant and from then on, it's just one shop after another. And as you say, how does he deal? What is with the problem? What is the respectable way of realizing that there are crazy things in the past? Well, we have sanatoriums for that.
1: Right.
0: Uh, the that's a respectable way of dealing with how strange human beings can be. And since it is science, and judges are also involved, it is also justice. Then you have all the authority of wisdom and of uh, public of, of the public of the government to hide from what is in your own family and what might shock the boots off of you in terms of what you even think being human is, and so he wants to commit people into the asylum. And of course, you know, you know it is necessary. These people are not able to live by themselves. Indeed, they might not be able to live at all in society anymore. They're not fit to live in society. But, uh, but it's also a, a further sign of his responsibility to get the judge and get the guy at the asylum, Happy Dale, of course Happy Dale, uh, to uh, get uh, his uh, cousin and then his aunts both uh, put away. Uh, There'll be uh, less of a menace and he will not have to deal with this stuff. And of course, he uh, uh, a new bridegroom, has to do his damnedest to keep his wife out of his family secrets. This is something he does not care to share, partly because he doesn't want to shock her. He wants to hide all these things, not just for his own sake, but for her sake. And that again comes to do with the fact that he underestimates her. He thinks that she would be so shocked that Scheider would would run from him or in a certain way she would be damaged by realizing what darkness hides in this Brewster mansion in Brooklyn. And uh, so he's alone for most of the uh, confrontation with his past as well. Now, this, of course, could be a horror movie, but Capra decided to go with a comedy because these old ladies are adorable, and they are part of a quaint old way of life that, after all, has bequeathed the America that Capra loves so well, and so does his audience. Um, that's uh, in that sense of farce is a much wiser way of dealing with the past than outrage, even sometimes when it does involve outrageous things or crimes or scandals, because we still owe something to the past. And it does no good to feel that one is uh, sophisticated to the point of rejecting one's own being. Right? Somebody who writes against matrimony like this guy does is trying to reject his past in a certain way. Had there been no matrimony, he wouldn't have existed in the first place. And yet he writes because of his conceit, his self-importance. But to be self-important is to affirm the importance of one's origins as well. And uh, he's not aware of that. Just like people who are today outraged by the past are not aware of the fact that they are cutting the limb that they grew from. It, it makes no sense to be self-important and deny the origins of our self-importance. And so instead, you would say that this is why this is so has to be a farce. Cary Grant uh, uh, is not just the most beautiful man, but it's the one that the most talented directors in Hollywood love to make fun of. Leo McCary, Howard Hawks, Frank Capra here, everybody who filmed him knew that they had to make fun of him partly because he was just too beautiful to deal with otherwise. But part, and, and it's more democratic that way, You know, he's not simply so much better than us, but partly because it allowed them to, to show these people we admire, people that any society might admire, Uh, they have to be taken down a peg or two. They're more arrogant than they realize and they presume too much. And so it makes sense that uh, he's shocked again and again by news of his family, uh, which is new to him, but not new, (laughs) absolutely. The news goes back hundreds of years. It's just new to him.
1: Yeah, and there are so many moments that really emphasize what, what, of course, the playwright is doing here, which is uh, writing a story about America's history. And that this this family is a stand-in for that that they're uh, you know they came over on the Mayflower and that they've been in Brooklyn for so long and they have this storied history and you you hear hints drop not just to Jonathan who's sort of the the family member that clearly they haven't spoken about for years and even if even if he comes up their their suggestion is to burn the picture of him uh, instead of confronting their their responsibility to or for him. Um, but then there are also lots of references to the grandfather who uh, has at one point that and that this I think was one of the moments that really I just almost gasped hearing it the first time because the Jonathan has just turned up he's talking to his aunts he's proving to them that he is who he says he is and one of them he tells he said I could see that you wear your collar high um, that was where grandfather threw the acid at you and I was like Wow, where did that come from? Uh,
0: I think it's not quite so. The, the grandfather is the guy with the laboratory of experiments, an eccentric. Yeah, it must have well, been an like, accident pos- that hurt it, the
1: girl. Oh, okay. Well, I must have misread that then. Yeah, but there is another one at, at one point where they're talking about the the ancestor who comes over and uh, scalps Indians. Uh, sort of the that he's clearly a barbarian, which is is passed off as this this joke, but it's. It's a definite uh, summary of the theme that the family has been corrupt for a long time and that uh, this is something that Mortimer has been avoiding thinking about, um, but that has been the case for a long time. And I think that it's interesting that, again, he's sort of this drama critic who is suddenly being drawn into a play himself. uh, So he's not able to maintain his critical distance at all after a while. And you could see that in the performance. I know that Cary Grant uh, was very uncomfortable with the the links to which Frank Capra pushed him in this saying it was his least favorite film and that he found it uh, he found it un- un- unpleasant to to just completely dial it up to 11 like this. He at one point said that he thought that uh, Jimmy Stewart would have been better in the role um, which perhaps it's it, it is true that Capra you know this is sort of the comic equivalent of the Jefferson Smith character who, unravels slowly over the course of the story um, but I think that it mostly works I, I think that, that for for the maybe the last 10 15 minutes of the story it gets to be a little bit much um, and I would say in general I think the pacing is a little bit again maybe you know it, it's a little bit long as a film but uh, the first sequence where he realizes what is happening what what he is sitting on what has, is is taking place it in, in the comforting and familiar environs of the the home he spent so much time in growing up with the aunts he loves so well, uh, is, is just a bravura sequence of reaction. Uh, and it, I don't think that that's overplayed at all. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's very broad, but uh, it's such a, a broad and humorous and comic and absurd situation that it, it calls for a true moment of shock and he delivers that to the nines, so. Uh, yeah, that, and then just reacting to his aunts as they spin out the story. I think it's, it's a great time.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Cary Grant was right for the part because he exemplifies this um, uh, wasp grandeur. He is, uh, he's not just a, a critic, uh, uh, an intellectual, but also a bachelor. He, is, uh, he wrote the, the Bachelor's Bible. He is, in a way, uh, the most privileged creature in American history since uh, he, he, he need only comment on the passing scene and look down on other people. And this nets him fame and fortune. People applaud him for the fact that he despises them. He believes he's too good for their way of life, and they applaud him for it. He's sitting in a shocking position in a democracy. And he, does not, he is not aware of that, as many WASPs in the culture of the first half of the 20th century didn't realize how little they were able to mix and mix well with the democracy over which they want to lord it. Uh, Mortimer's uh, cousin is uh, this fellow uh, who believes he's Teddy Rosa. There's the ultimate in wasp uh, politics. He's uh, a manly man, a willful man, a man of public spirit, and absolutely unaware of how ridiculous all his manliness can look like now and then. He is um, um, put it this way, he, uh, there is much to admire in uh, Teddy Roosevelt's manliness, but there is also much to, to be uh, skeptical of. That is to say, his conviction that his personal strength of will and his dedication to his country suffices is unwarranted. And indeed, in reality, uh, as, as in the movie, they joke about it, he was replaced by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, the most unmanly American president, if you will, since he was a university president and the only president so far with a PhD. It doesn't get less bully than that. Uh, So uh, to some extent, Roosevelt was simply deluded. He was a man full of adventure, but like men of adventure often are, he was blind to his limitations or to the extent to which his uh, uh, adventures do not answer what is really happening inside of him, what he really wants. It makes perfect sense for somebody who is crazy to believe he is Teddy Roosevelt, as it would be to believe that one is Napoleon. Uh, Of course, if you think you're Napoleon, you're crazy. But if you think about Napoleon, who was Napoleon, wasn't he also crazy? Uh, Invading Russia is not a very smart thing to do, for example. But but he didn't see it at the time. How could you not notice it? Uh, Surely Napoleon, unlike us, was a grand strategist, and yet, he was uh, he made much stupider mistakes than a normal person then the Roosevelt yeah, was this, the same
1: it's this dram- dramatization of the hubris of these great figures who have no no sense of, of wh- where their the way that their actions are perceived in the greater steam of things and uh, the, I think that really ties into the way that as, as you mentioned in, uh, earlier the, the the story keeps. Uh, drawing our, our attention back to plays as, as a meta narrative. And everyone, everyone in the story seems to be writing a play. You have uh, the, the policeman who turns up well into well into the story and is just insistent that everyone hear, hear his, his play about his mother uh, who couldn't possibly be uh, an illegitimate actress because she was his mother, which is a telling line. And uh, he, he, takes advantage of a captive audience, uh, quite literally, to, to dis- <laughs> describe this play. And that, that, that's also, shout out to Jack Carson, who plays, uh, plays that role. He, he's always wonderful. And um, then at very near the end, Witherspoon, the man who is uh, the head guy at uh, Happydale, also ha- happens to be writing a play about things that have happened to him And so anyway, everyone is shaping their narrative. Everyone uh, is putting themselves into the story and uh, trying to create their own mythology about their past and about their history uh, that places themselves in a very flattering light, uh, which is suddenly what Mortimer has to do when he switches roles from drama critic to playwright, because essentially he's trying to create a narrative in which his, uh, his family is innocent of anything except insanity. Uh, and, uh, that the, the one, the one family member that we all know is insane. We can at least throw him under the bus. Uh, and so he's trying to create this narrative and get everyone else to accept it. And that's really what he's doing throughout the course of the story is, uh, running about trying to make sure that everybody else is signed off, that all the paperwork is done, that the story holds together. Um, and there are a lot of other characters doing the exact same thing, presenting their stories, talking about that. Um, And, uh, of course, there's also the sequence when he is tied up and he's or he's about to be tied up. He's talking about the blindness of people in plays that they can't see what they're doing. And um, it's a great sequence as as uh, Peter Lorre can see what's happening. um, And Raymond Massey, who plays Jonathan Brewster, is actually getting his ideas from Mortimer as Mortimer is blithely and ignorantly and arrogantly spinning these off while he's sitting, <laughs> sitting at the table waiting to be tied up. Um, so there's just, yeah, there's a, a complete lack of awareness of recognition that, that he is part of the play, that he is part of the story, uh, that he's not above or uh, disconnected from it. And uh, he, he also recognizes that this is something that happens to smart people uh, more than it happens to people who are who are aware of their own uh, unsophistication enough to, to be looking behind their shoulder when they're in a house with murderers. Um, but if you're arrogant, if you're smart, those things tend to go together, then you're not going to not going to have that same level of awareness and of looking over your shoulder when there's a murderer in the house. I mean, <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think that's right. The, uh, altogether, the criticism of the wasps in the story is that they are arrogant. Teddy Roosevelt looks ridiculous if if you put him in the middle of a house. But in a way, isn't all of America a bunch of houses, a bunch of people living their ordinary private lives? Public spirit goes a long way, but it's not the way of life. The way of life is people in their living rooms, people in their houses. And uh, if you try to put uh, Teddy Roosevelt there, uh, it doesn't fit. It makes sense that he should go on safari for a couple of years as a post-presidency. Clearly, that man did not know how to stand still. There was something really wrong with him. Uh, But so also, in the next generation, so to speak, you get this new WASP who is a cultural critic. Indeed, the first half of the 20th century, America did have cultural critics who were WASPs or aspired to that way of thinking. And they were not particularly good at any part of their job, except impressing the audience. They were very impressive people. And uh, this is what Cary Grant plays. It's a parody of all these types. Uh, And uh, as you say, this guy who thinks he is the most unconventional is the one who's most desperate to make the story of conventional American respectability stick. He'll get the judge involved. He'll get the sanatorium involved. He will defend the family's honor. The more he's shocked by them, the more he wants to hide what they are about. So he turns from a guy who, with a nasty taste for telling ugly truths into a guy desperate to hide ugly truths the closer he gets to them or the more of them pile up on top of him. And uh, that's a very funny thing to see. Uh, with the aunts, as you said, uh, their arrogance strangely comes from their charity. It's not from, but, but like with Teddy Roosevelt, unlike the ordinary American, like with uh, Cary Grant here, the beautiful, charming bachelor of wit, so also these women, they're superior to everybody around. Them. They Their charity comes from condescension, and uh, yeah, this you know this these pitiful old men. Uh, first one dies by accident, and they get the clue. You know we could learn a lesson here. They seem much happier dead, and uh, and so you could say that you know uh, their unwillingness to look at the suffering of other old people leads them to kill them because they seem happy when they're dead. They don't bother you anymore. It's a strange yeah, there. thing, but
1: yeah all of their analyses are are surface level they uh th- the main markers that they they have for people are their denomination always within the same small set of protestant denominations there's never a catholic um but uh you know oh for a baptist or for a methodist or you know <laughs> all of these things which you know shows the the smallness of their world and the uh the shallowness of their concerns which is very funny because uh it's it's a great satire of of their obliviousness of their Uh, of their smallness. And, you know, we've all been there. Um, And so, yeah, they, they can only see the world within the the very limited terms and and frame that they have been, uh, that has been established for them. There's, uh, at at one point, Mortimer tries to persuade them, uh, or tries to to talk to them on terms of morality, and then quickly gives it up. Uh, He says, it's not just that this is against the law, it's wrong. And he sees that that's not breaking through. So he tries the nuclear option. He says, it's not nice. <laughs> and even that doesn't seem to break through because that's, that's, that's the terms in which they usually see, see things as nice or not nice, uh, which is a sort of morality-free, very bourgeois uh, way, of, way, way of breaking down decisions in the world. But um, there's no profundity there. There's just, just a service level decision. Yeah,
0: that's right. Uh, you know, all he can say is people wouldn't understand.
1: <laughs> yes. You know,
0: you'd end up a story. People would be shocked at you. You wouldn't be respectable anymore. And of course, I mean, their respectability, their that that's by itself a little strange. These are uh, sisters and they are old maids. Why didn't they get married? It's certainly unnatural in the ordinary sense. There, there is a continuity of the generations. After all, they are, were themselves born. Um, the They played mother to these kids, but they didn't have kids of their own. Um, the, they are stranger than they seem, but people like to look at these old ladies and say they must be saintly, because otherwise we would feel pity for them and we would think they're strange, that they're not entirely natural. We would look at them as better to call them saints. Now, uh, of course, there's always a lot to be said for propriety and respectability, but there's also room for farts and comedy. And here you see the, the virtues of the WASPs, which were very real. The WASPs did more than any other group to deal with America's politics and society and the Protestant churches and so forth. But, uh, but the, if, if the movie comes across as graveyard humor, a black satyr on the WASPs, well, the WASPs did dig themselves under, didn't they? There was much wrong with them that they didn't realize. Their eccentricity seemed to them as a kind of virtues when they were nothing but arrogance. And uh, there is no nicer way of putting that ugly truth than in a comedy. In a certain way, the Catholic immigrant uh, Capra does as much as possible justice to the wasps whom he is criticizing. Not least of all, of course, by making a movie that hides its criticism so much that you could think it's stupid. Indeed, arrogant people might look at this movie and say, well, it's brains. It's just a stupid thing, and uh, that would not uh, prove anything uh, impressive about those people, but at least it would spare them the self-criticism, so to speak, of understanding what the movie is about.
1: Yes, I suspect if Mortimer watched the movie, he would think it was just, oh, that's a a nice comedy recognizing the thematic material was not something he's terribly interested in. Uh, because again, like if he recognizes that he's a, a character in the story instead of the dramatic critic, then he's he's responsible for, for being a, an, an actor within it. Uh, he has complicity and he has involvement. And those are things that he's not terribly interested in having at all, but which have fallen into his lap. Uh, and he's not quite sure what to do with them. So all of this of course builds Towards the ending, which is one of the things that Capra did change uh, from the play. And you can you could see this on one level, it's just Capra wanting it to be have a happier ending, uh, in which uh, good triumphs, but it, it is also just I think showing his sensibilities. And I'm trying to describe it in the least spoilery way if it's possible, but I think this I'm just gonna go for the spoiler at this point. Uh, that uh, that in the in the original play, the old ladies triumph, they they uh, are about to be taken off to Happydale Sanitarium, and they ask the uh, they ask Witherspoon, "Would you like some wine before we go?" And Of course, he takes it, and he says, "I you know I I thought I'd had my last glass of elderberry wine." And they're like, "No, here it is," and that's the that's the ending of the play, and it's all very funny, but uh, essentially, it shows that the that that past cannot be overtaken, it can't be hidden, it can't be triumphed over, and. Capra has a much happier ending where, uh, even if it is a little bit, um, dissatisfying as far as the truth being, being out, uh, murder does not out the, uh, um, Elaine finds out what's happening, but, uh, she is satisfied to have Mortimer in the end. Uh, and they go off happily and they ignore, they ignore the past. And I think that, you know, Capra is much more comfortable with the idea that, Despite all of the all of the familial and national sins, we can we can ride off into the sunset with Cary Grant, ideally.
0: Yeah, uh, you know it's questionable, but of course uh, this is uh, it's it's a work of art. It's a, a play that was turned into a movie, and the movie is indeed superior because it understands the what the work of art does better. Uh, when you see the the comedy before, you see a corpse. Before you see another corpse, before you see this murderer that looks like Boris Karloff from the movies, uh, you you are already embarrassed by some of the things you see. There, it, it's too ridiculous. It's um, and uh, that that is to say, detect a, a breach of propriety, and propriety is must and can be restored, but of course you cannot in a play, uh, especially not in a comedy. Uh, achieve this kind of moral satisfaction of outing the truth and morally reforming the nation, or on the other hand, admitting that America cannot be morally reformed, and then nobody should laugh again. Uh, You can't live the national drama every day. You cannot wake up in the morning and mourn for the terrors of the past or for the injustices of America. Uh, It is of the essence of comedy if it does any moral work to encourage you to live down some of the past, to let go of some of the moral drama, because otherwise, uh, yeah, it makes for crazy people. As you see, these wasps who are stuck in different ways in the past, uh, they're crazy people. Mortimer, without quite realizing it, would say against his pride, wants to live down the past, wants to get a new life, wants to embrace the modern America out there. And uh, before the whole family drama starts, he is, uh, he's willing to become one of those vulgar Americans who get married and go to Niagara Falls and uh, you know, uh, go the whole hog. Uh, it's, uh, he's not uh, irredeemable in that sense. He can make a go of it in America. Uh, he, you know, he is too contemptuous in a certain way of his wife's innocence, and he's too arrogant about his own knowingness, but not irredeemable. The other characters, they're not exactly bad, but they are lost in the past. And there's no way out of this for them. There's, uh, In in that sense, comedy is less hopeful than morality would encourage us. This is rare for a Capra film. Capra was very moralistic otherwise. But here you see that, uh, yeah, this guy is a crazy guy who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt. And nobody's going to change that. You want him to get back to his authentic self or uh, whatever one might think is the moral way, but uh, it's not going to happen. He's deluded. And these old ladies, who's going to teach these old ladies? The people who used to think them so respectable and saintly, what authority would these people have, pretty tell? There's no good answer to these problems on moral terms. There are limits to morality. Madness is a limit to morality be moral is to make choices, and when you're mad, I mean, that has just flown out the window, hasn't it? Uh, comedy in pointing to madness points to the limits of morality. The, uh, but of course, this is the least, uh, so to speak, of evil. This continuum of madness from the guy who thinks he's uh, Teddy Roosevelt, but you know he hasn't hurt anybody, to these old aunts who kill old men, but on the other hand, you know they are old men dying a peaceful death. It is murder, but as murder goes, this is the least mur- war- terrible murder there is. Two, of course, the, the monster in the family who uh, has, has uh, you know, the Brewsters uh, centuries back have always had crazy people in the family. Uh, America's past cannot be as nice as Victorian respectability or Episcopalian dignity would require, but still, Uh, it was America's past. It it built something great and good. And also, part uh, along the way, there were a lot of crazy people and a lot of dangerous things. Uh, With with this fellow, uh, the Boris Karloff lookalike, played by uh, Raymond Massey, uh, there you see all this wickedness concentrated, so to speak. It's as close to evil as you can get. He looks like a monster, like Frankenstein's monster indeed. And he does come in tow with a German doctor who is humorously called Einstein, which is hilarious for the times. And uh, there you see an evil that must be confronted. This is not the same kind of madness as with these other people who have something quaint or about them because they're not going around uh, involving themselves in catastrophes. Um, He has to be stopped. And so in a way, uh, Cary Grant does get to redeem himself partly by uh, doing justice partly by being part of this uh, effort to put down this murder there are and and so Capra even in this comedic way suggests that there are some things you have to let be leave behind and there are some things you have to stop there are certain controls you have to put on people
1: yeah though it is also true that of course the the true hero of the piece turns out to be Dr. Einstein uh Peter Lorre you know ends up upstaging Cary Grant uh to knock out Jonathan Brewster and save the day and he manages to escape even from the, the Hayes Code, uh, I think because of that. So, you know, that there's redemption for, for even the crazy German plastic surgeons that, <laughs> that pop up in the story. And this is, I will also, Peter Lorre is so much fun in this. Uh, I, I feel like this is just sort of almost the, the, the purest form of Peter Lorre-ness uh, in, in this, this role. And I think he's having a great time with it as well.
0: Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's almost as funny as the Boris Karloff Frankenstein thing. And at first, and then over the course of the movie, indeed, it just uh, is the you know with the most interesting note because Peter Lorre became famous in Weimar Germany for playing a psychopathic murderer in Fritz Lang's M. And uh, then he came to Hollywood the same year. This was made 1941. He was in John Huston's debut, which made the star of Humphrey Bogart, The Maltese Falcon. And he was in uh, uh, again with Bogart in uh, in, uh, Casablanca, which was written by the Epstein twins, who also wrote the screenplay for this movie. Uh, and indeed, as you were saying, uh, It's a Wonderful Life is the most American old Hollywood movie since the only one you can expect most Americans to have seen. Next or the contender would be Casablanca. And um, uh, the, the writers of that movie, the Epstein brothers, also wrote the adaptation for the screen here for, uh, for Capra. And uh, the, the, the strangest part of the work is this transformation of Peter Lorre with a kind of anguished monster. Uh, he's not obviously human, but he's also in some strange way a victim of mob justice in that uh, crazy German movie. Here he's in a certain way brought around to serve justice. He is uh, as an abettor of the monster, uh, you know, accessory to about a dozen murders, but uh, he was forced into it. Weakness is a kind of excuse. The madness is not inside of him in the American movie, unlike in the German movie, it's outside of him, it's this great evil murderer. And he can be separated from it and perhaps not quite redeemed, but certainly he can contribute something to justice. And so all this farce uh, turns out in fact to have a great interest in justice. Uh, Indeed the old aunts and the guy who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt, they don't go to jail for murder and accessory respectively, but they are put away forever in an asylum. That too is some measure of justice. It's, um, and uh, the doctor, as you suggest, he he, is, he makes his choice. And uh, he he wants to stop this evil guy when he sees what he's doing. Uh, uh, some of the people he had killed were, if not as bad as him, then at least as corrupt. Whereas here, he would be abetting this murderer and destroying his family and all these decent people. And uh, there'd be another half dozen corpses of innocence, And he can't abide that that's yeah, a the moment choice. that he
1: yeah the moment that he draws a line is not with mortimer but it's with petty you can't see it, it in the film it's a little bit garbled as he's yelling and everyone's yelling but he says not teddy this is this is this is a bridge too far so clearly it's his devotion to teddy roosevelt that uh pushes dr einstein towards his redemption which is a rather gloriously bonkers sentence to to say out loud <laughs>
0: <laughs> Indeed, it's it's such a farce. Talking about it is, uh, you know, uh, you can either say these things that are literally true or and but but ridiculous or uh, like make a fool of yourself by talking about justice in a farce. Either way, you're you're stuck with this thing, which is part of why it's so good. Uh, just uh, thinking out loud, so to speak, about what's happening and what it means is
1: is hilarious. Yes, I keep thinking about various relatives and uh you know family history and i i we i do have a distant relative who died in an asylum who may have been connected to a murder though she was not connected by blood so anyway that that's you know it's bringing back lots of fun family memories americana you know charming
0: and that's the solution for Carrie grant too right it turns out he was adopted you know, yes, he's a pure-blooded exactly. American mongrel. He's not one of these oh, distinguished aristocratic boosters who we'll go back to the Mayflower. But you know, it's such a uh,
1: relief not to be an aristocrat. <laughs> it's this this wonderful, you know. And of course, they cut this line from the the movie, but he he yells, "I'm a bastard!" with great joy in the in the play, uh, which is a, a very American joy <laughs> to yeah. discover that you're not you're not one of the the prep school
0: crowd. Exactly because uh, you know horror is an old world genre it's uh, Dr Frankenstein or it's Jekyll and Mr Hyde it's uh, even some I I think mostly but I'm not sure if mostly the Edgar Allan Poe horror takes place in Europe many of them take place at any rate in the old world from England to Italy and uh, Spain because that's where horror happens because uh, Europe is not like America the land of the free and the home of the brave it's uh, the land of traditions and of beliefs and of uh, a tragic past that keeps catching up with people and causes terrifying things. And of course, it's not uh, d- democratic. Well, you know, it wasn't in the 19th century, at any rate. Uh, America is the future, not the past. America is not uh, stuck with horror. Horror can turn to horror comedy because there is a minimum of justice and decency. As you see, even this uh, Peter Laurie. Uh, mad drunkard German doctor when he sees this mad guy who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt and he's so innocent he's never hurt anybody you know if you can think you're Teddy Roosevelt and be uh, you know innocuous not at all dangerous I mean what is more innocent than that <laughs> and so uh, it stops him in his tracks he 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 does the right thing so it, there's hope for America and uh, of course uh, this may seem very naive as a farce or as a Capra movie, but isn't it fundamentally true? Just because it says obvious things, one should not despise them. It it is a kind of corrupt sophistication to despise the truth when it is obvious. But the obvious truth is that Europeans were far more sophisticated than Americans and had far more intellectuals and cultural traditions in the past that Americans are too ignorant to even realize how ignorant they are. Uh, They went to two world wars that uh, destroyed each other. Uh, they killed each other as much as they could for year and year and year, and then they did it again in the next generation. Uh, all those people who were saying crazy things about how crazy Europe was in the 19th century turned out to have been right. And uh, comparatively, the people who seem simpletons in America because they're patriots also turned out to have been right. America was not involved in that sort of stuff. Not that there is not injustice or evil or wickedness in America, but it was not civilization of suicide. From the ordinary level of the House to the grand level of the mm-hmm. continental democracy, it's not national suicide and it counts. It makes the difference. So I think that is the basis on which uh, the farce is built. Uh, it, it satirizes the WASPs, but it's not, uh, it, it's not exactly against WASPs. The, the virtues of the WASPs and uh, their contribution to American politics, society, and more is, they're very real and they were good for the most part. It's uh, only in the context of the context of the great democratization of the 20th century that uh, they became became obsolete and made uh, fools of themselves because they did not realize it. That's, I would say, the the extent of the criticism. Uh, you know, his, uh, Frank Capra is certainly not the guy who thinks you know America is just one horror thing after another, evil lurking behind respectability, and everything in fact is madness. It's not that sort of thing. He's not, you know, Edgar Allan Poe or H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, uh, and uh, he's more moderate for it. This is as far as he went into uh, hysterical, if uh, funny, criticism of America. But you know, hysterical is a double entendre for that reason. When you are laughing hysterically, you do not know really if uh, you're in charge of yourself anymore or not. Maybe it's because you figured something out. You're intelligent enough to have seen something funny. That's always flattering, but maybe it's because you're mad, you've lost control of yourself, you've lost your mind, you've lost your senses. Uh, being hysterically funny or being vulnerable to a farce is ambiguous in that way. Like the wasps are ambiguous, and indeed American democracy is somewhat ambiguous too. And uh, I, this is why I wanted to start a series on Capra with this movie. It's It may, it may seem a movie easy to despise, and I suppose it is, but it's... Uh, uh, sophisticated enough and intelligent enough and it has a good heart and that's a combination that i think describes capra much more than people realize and explains why he's not lost his appeal why as america democratizes further people still like this guy
1: yeah yeah no i agree you had asked me to come up with a list of uh ha- recommendations of ha- halloween films that it occurred to me as you were speaking one one that is not a film but uh that was the most recent Halloween themed uh, piece of American media that was also comic that I could think of uh, that is, and this will lower the sophistication of your audience, but I think that that's appropriate after this particular podcast. Uh, we, we could all use a little bit less. Uh, there was a Nickelodeon TV special uh, a few years ago. Uh, I can't remember what year it came out, called Over the Garden Wall. It's an adaptation of Dante, uh, or and it's uh, so again, it is—it does have a very European flair to it, but it's set in a Mark Twain-esque uh, world where these two brothers are uh, experiencing a series of, of tests. And uh, they, they, of course, it starts off. With they're in a dark wood somewhere in New England. They walk through and they meet—they uh, meet a variety of odd things, from witches to uh, aristocrats, uh, both very odd. Um, and, uh, you know, men with pumpkins for heads trying to kill them. It's, it's, so there's a, a lot of horror, but that there's also humorous elements of it. Anyway, uh, I, I, it was so topically relevant that I could not bring it up. It's one of my, my sister's favorite pieces of, of things. It's a very oddball little thing, but it, it does, I think, really bring all of those sensibilities together in a strange way in that it, uh, it recognizes the European roots of of the halloween horror but uh also has a much more american positivity to it and it's much much funnier too um anyway that's that that one it's a bit of an oddball recommendation perhaps but then um the others the others i was i was having a hard time because i'm a wimp and i hate scary movies <laughs> and so there's very little that i i, I was thinking well, you know, everybody, all my friends would file off to watch a horror movie. And I'm like, nope, nope, not today. But uh, I think The Addams Family is one you have to reference as sort of an iconic American comedy that has horror elements and Halloween uh, imagery threaded throughout. Um, And uh, the the film version of that is a great deal of fun. Um, But then this one is a bit of an odd recommendation as well, not specifically a Halloween film, but it is a comedy that that suddenly takes a a strong twist into horror late in the story and that's Harold Lloyd's The Kid Brother uh, which is my favorite silent movie Um, and it has a wonderful ending sequence where it's sort of the the hero's descent into hell except it's this this great hulking ship and there's a a killer inside after him and he's being chased and it's it's a really you know it's it's reminded me of arsenic and old lace in that it does have this sudden stylistic shift um as the hero who who has been trying to be a cowboy throughout uh suddenly faces this uh this very dark internal world as he's he's becoming the hero and has to emerge from it anyway it's all very funny but it is it's genuinely thrilling and scary at that moment as well and uh it's a movie of which if i always tell people if you've never seen a silent movie and you think you would never like one. This is the one that will convert you. I've never once had someone come away from it and not say, you know, actually, I do like silent movies. I, I just pulled that one on a roommate, much to her shock.
0: So Wonderful recommendations. Very surprising. And I hope uh, to have a chance to follow up on them myself. For my list of recommendations, I'd start with Tim Burton movies. I think Tim Burton is America's Halloween guy. He looks at what's so creepy about Americans but he's not exactly a horror movie guy. There's something all American and winning in his movies or at rate in most of them. I'm happy to recommend him precisely because he doesn't go for the sorted much. And he certainly doesn't wish to shock people out of their complacency. He's kind of okay with complacency. And I like that in a director. And... Since in Arsenic and Lace* there is this entire joke about Boris Karloff and uh, Frankenstein, I can recommend Abbott and Costello movies about meeting uh, Frankenstein, about meeting the Invisible Man. These joke movies from the 50s about the universal horror movies of the 30s, when they meet Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the Invisible Man, which are indeed European horrors. The horror comedy would capture something fundamental about how Americans see themselves. Even the Adams Family shows that a horror family is in fact another American family and they're kind of middle class too, you know. They have the same problems with their kids and they have the same strange relatives as anybody else does. It's the American way. Horror is domesticated in America for the most part. And I think it's preferable to the alternative, which is the horror that uh, cinema has gradually turned into since the 70s. And of course, now horror is the most bankable genre. And I don't think one can exactly blame these artists, but I do think it shows something very dark about the nation. When Americans could laugh at horror, they were more confident and more charming, I think. And perhaps some of that attitude can be recovered. And for an old Hollywood movie, there is a lovely farce with Loretta Young and Brian Ahern, and it is called A Night to Remember. It's also about a clever guy who, in fact, writes murder mysteries, and it's also about Brooklyn and getting into a haunted house. And a bunch of silly mistakes one after another make this charming couple the newlyweds get uh, to know each other somewhat better. It's largely free of the sorted. And though it's not a Hollywood classic, it's a very pleasant movie. So I am happy to recommend this one too. And I think this brings us around to the conclusion of our conversation. Hannah, thanks very much for joining me. It was a joy to watch the movie again and to talk to somebody about it. And now other people can watch it and uh, laugh at it and talk to their friends about it. And soon, I'm sure, Arsenic and Goldwiss will take its deserved place in the filmography of Capra. And people will be a bit happier for it. So thanks again and all the best. Likewise.